Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is Daniel, the handwriting on the wall. We're going to be taking a look at Daniel, but first, first of all, I want you to take a look at this guy. Anybody know who that guy is? Nope, sorry. That guy, there you go. Anybody know him? George Armstrong, General George Armstrong Custer, famous for, for being an... Uh, well, for being arrogant and reckless is what he's famous for. If you've heard of the Battle of the Little Bighorn, he was the guy who lost miserably, paid for his mistakes of arrogance and recklessness with his own life. Um, he, he took a 700-man battalion in against more than 3,000 or close to 3,000 armed uh, Indian braves, even though his guides, Indian guides with him, so they had never, ever seen that many Indians gathered in one place. He still went off into the valley and took off after these guys. Uh, he lost his life along with the lives of the five companies that were underneath his immediate command. All of them were killed as a result of it. Again, the Indians were not the aggressors, uh, George was. And uh, he had a life that was uh, sort of marked by uh, arrogance and um, recklessness. And one of the things that he did, it wasn't just the thing that he did at the Little Bighorn, when he was first, after the Civil War, when he was sent into the Indian territories and into the Wild West, effectively, the areas of Kansas and Nebraska, he was in northern Kansas, and uh, he was famous for a couple of things. He liked pearl-handled revolvers. He had these personalized pearl-handled 45 Colt revolvers that he carried. He also loved greyhounds. He believed greyhounds were the fastest animals in the world until he brought them into the central part of the United States and they started chasing things like American antelope. The antelope would outpace a, and could outrun and could outbreathe and, and greyhounds were used to running down rabbits, not antelopes. And so anyway, so he comes to the central part of the northern part of Kansas and, and they jump a group of antelope and these greyhounds take off. Well, he's a general in charge of an entire regiment. He takes off without his men and just rides off willy-nilly, like I said, reckless and arrogant, rides off willy-nilly chasing these, these greyhounds. And they go over several hills until the, like I said, the antelope just, they don't have an end to their ability. They can just continue to run and run and run and run and run. Greyhounds gave up. He found himself, though, as he comes over one hill, facing this uh, very large uh, bison, buffalo, one of the first ones he had seen. Turns out that not only was one of the first ones he's seen, it was by far the biggest he ever seen, this giant shaggy bull buffalo standing at the bottom of this hill. He decides he's going to kill it with one of his pearl-handled revolvers. So, of course, close range is necessary with a pistol of any kind, especially when you're dealing with a you know 3,000-pound beast. And so he decides he's going to ride alongside this thing, because the Indians had done that. They ride along and shoot him with arrows. And he's going to shoot it with his 45, but he decides that getting close was not good enough for him, that he wanted to be able to touch the animal with the barrel of his pistol. Again, this is George Custer. I mean, that's just the way he ran his life. So I would hate to have been under his command. But anyway, so he goes, he's right by himself. He's a general of an entire regiment. He's left them miles behind. He's riding out in the middle of nowhere, riding with his pistol. He goes up and touches the ribs of the buffalo, just going to pull the trigger, kill the animal. Right when he does that, the thing veers and runs effectively over his mount, his horse. Pushes the pistol, as he's pulling the trigger, it pushes the pistol and the pistol goes off, but it doesn't go off into the buffalo. It goes off in the back of the head of his horse. So the horse goes to heaven and George goes, you know, George takes a flying uh, trip for a while. When the dust settles, he's laying between a dead horse and a not very happy bull, uh, uh, buffalo. Anyway, such is the escapades of 
a person who thinks they're invincible and uh, does things arrogantly and recklessly. Feeling of invincibility has led to many downfall, and we're going to be leading, reading about that today in the book of Daniel, and such is the case of the story of, of the person we're going to find, a guy by the name of Belshazzar, who is the king and grandson of Nebuchadnezzar we read about last time. There's going to be, it's the story of the handwriting on the wall, chapter 5. And, uh, you know, some things are lost in translation, and this is what's happening here in this story. This handwriting on the wall is lost in translation to a lot of people, everybody that's there with the exception of Daniel. Have you ever been, I don't know if you've ever been to a foreign country or read foreign signs that have been translated or they try to translate into English. Sometimes, sometimes things get lost in translation, like this one, I believe, is in Germany. We should be aware of invisibility. I don't know how to be aware of it. Or maybe this one. I don't think that's what the sign actually says. I think they meant Raceway Park or Race Park, but not Races Park. I don't know. And then this one, I don't know about you, but I've been shot before. And it was never, it was never nice. I'm certain, though, that maybe you've eaten at this Chinese restaurant. Yeah, I've been to that one. I don't, that's not probably exactly what the Chinese says, but that's a, that's a direct translation. Or, or, or this one, hand grenade. It is for the hand, and I, I guess it will go off. Sometimes things are lost in translation, and we're going to find out that this is a story of something that is lost in translation, the story of the handwriting on the wall that God performs here in the book of Daniel. And just to catch you up to speed, if you were with us last time, and even if you weren't, there's a 25-year difference between chapters 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4 is the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He had a whole chapter in the Bible, most people don't know, written by a Babylonian king in his language, Aramaic. Daniel, of course, takes the dictation, but it's written by Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, he was also an arrogant dude and God brought him super low and he repented and turned to God. And the whole story is about how he is acknowledging to his people, the whole Babylonian people, God is an awesome God. He alone is sovereign. We trust, we're trusting and turning. He basically says, as a leader, I'm turning the whole nation over to God. And that's what happens. But this is 25 years later, 15 years, probably after the death of the same guy that we read about in chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar, things have changed for the Babylonian empire. His son, uh, by the game of, by the... A guy by the name of Nabonidus has now become king, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. He is also appointed as his co-regent, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, a guy by the name of Belshazzar, who is the main character in chapter 5. Both of these guys, both the son and grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, decide they're not going to follow the God of the Bible. They're not going to follow the God of the Jews. They're not going to follow the God who humbled Nebuchadnezzar. They're not going to do what he says. They're going to turn the whole nation back to paganism. In the process of them turning the whole nation back to paganism, problems have arisen against the nation of Babylon. Along the borders, the northern and eastern borders of Babylon, the armies of the Medes and Persians have been amassing. So there's problems. Uh, Issues are growing and things are happening. And and so instead of turning back to the God of the Bible, they just go more whole hog toward these foreign or I guess you'd say not foreign to them, these pagan gods and worshiping these pagan gods all the way to including sacrificing their own children in the fire and all this horrible stuff. And so uh, they're doing all these things. They're doing it with more and more intensity. In fact, where we find ourselves in chapter, uh, chapter, chapter 5 is a situation where the, the king Nebuchadnezzar has gone out and done a campaign through the whole land of Babylon, rebuilding all the temples and all the altars to these pagan gods. And he's left his son uh, Belshazzar back in Babylon to throw a major party. 
And the party's going to be all in honor of these gods made of gold and silver and bronze who cannot speak or hear, and yet, nevertheless, uh, they're worshiping them. And so that's the occasion that we find taking place here. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 5 of Daniel. Belshazzar, remember he's number two in the world at this point. His dad, number one. The king of Babylon held, or the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. And he was drinking wine in the presence of a thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple. Now, he had conquered many temples, many cultures, many gods had, if you will, fallen underneath him. But he'd also conquered the temple because God allowed him to, the temple in Jerusalem. And he had carted off all the utensils of the temple that worshiped God. Notice, of all the gods... He has him go get the utensils from that temple. Of all the temples, he has him go get the, why is he doing this? There's a reason, we're going to get to it. So he goes and has him go and gets these specific utensils, the ones that came from the temple in Jerusalem, in order that the kings and his nobles, the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So it wasn't, any old glass won't do. I want these from the temple of God. And so if you don't get the impression that he's pointing his finger in the face of God, you've not been listening because that's what he's doing. This is very intentional. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and concubines drank for them, from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron, wood and stone. Not a good idea. They're going to find out that pretty quick. So the part you aren't told here is and that we know historically is that not only have the Medes and Persians gathered on the border, they have already invaded. And, and I would submit to you, or no doubt, Belshazzar knows it, but he doesn't care. He's throwing a major party because he's basically thumbing his nose in the face of the Medes and Persians, and ultimately he's thumbing his nose in the face of God. No one can get to us. No one, I'm invincible. This city is invincible. We are awesome, no one can touch us, not even the God of the Jews who had made himself famous in Babylon through Daniel and through his friends, through humbling Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man, one of the greatest kings who ever lived. Chapter four is all about that humbling and how he turned to God and all that. But he's convinced that the city is impregnable and he has a good reason for that. And I want to bring you up to speed of what he's dealing with here. According to the Greek uh, historian Herodotus, uh, the city had a wall 56 miles long. It's not a little bitty city. It also had a wall that's 320 feet high. Just to give you an idea of how tall that is, our bridge is tall, right? It's only 85 feet high. So this is almost three times higher. That's how tall the walls were. He's on the inside of these walls saying, you can't touch us. You understand why he feels that way? Not only are they 320 feet high, they are 80 feet thick. So it's about as tall as your bridge is over here is how thick these walls were. And they were capable of riding four abreast chariots around the entire uh, circumference of, of the city. In addition to that, the city is surrounded by a very deep moat, which is fed by the Euphrates River. They're still over there today. Our guys that have fought in Iraq have been over there across the Euphrates. It's right there uh, by Baghdad. It's a monstrous river. So this monstrous river that comes out of the highlands of Turkey is feeding water into the city, around the city, and underneath the city wall. So they had an endless supply underneath the city wall through the middle of the streets. There flowed part of the Euphrates River around the city. Of course, this huge moat 
You can't get in it. Even if there was no moat, the, the walls are 320 feet high for crying out loud, 80 feet thick. What are you going to do? And so they have an endless supply of water. Historians, archaeologists have, archaeologists have determined that they had the supply of the city for everyone who lived there, thousands, by the way, was upward of 20 years. So we got more than 20 years of food, an endless supply of water, walls 320 feet thick. Who's going to touch us? That's why he's throwing the party. Effectively saying, not even God can stop us. Now, that's a mistake. <laughs> Don't point your finger in the face of God and dare him to do anything. That's a huge mistake. This was a very intentional act meant to show disrespect to God. Of course, that the respect of God in Babylon was over. Like I said, how many kingdoms and how many temples had he conquered? That he had gotten the utensils out of, that he had plundered. How many gods could he have chosen from to dishonor? And yet of all those gods, possibly thousands, he only chooses the God of Jerusalem. Why if, well here, here's, here's the position that a lot of people hold today. If all religions are the same and all gods are the same, why is it that every time I have never heard anyone cuss in the name of Baal, have you? Why is it that when we curse, we always pick the God of the Bible and his son, Jesus Christ? See, in their denial of him, they are actually claiming that they believe in him the same way this guy did. Oh, we know that he exists. That's why we're thumbing our nose at him. Again, let me just, a word to the wise. Don't put God in a position where he has to judge you. Please, for your own sake, do not do that. Do not dare God to stop you or make you do something because you may just find out something about God that you did not want to know. And that is what this young man is going to find out here. Something he definitely did not want to know. Thumbing his nose at both God and the Medes and the Persians who were gathered by the way at this time outside the city. No one can get in here, not even God, he says. Like I said, a word to the wise. Here's the word. Let me give you a, a good verse here. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You may say, well, they've got an example right here in the scriptures. They're mocking God. They're throwing a party against him. No, it doesn't say you can't do it. It just says you can't do it with impunity. Yeah, you can do it, but you're going to find out real quick that God responds to things, and this is not the way you want him to respond. He doesn't respond to all my prayers. Well, yeah, give him everything. He's supposed to give you everything that you want. Where does, that, where does it say that? And you, you don't, if you're a parent, when, when was the last time you gave your kids everything that they wanted? They don't know what they need, neither do you. God does, though, but don't punch your finger in the face of God and dare him to do something because you might find out in a hard way that he is. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. This is true. This is true in the longevity of life. I can sow and do things, but, but clearly if you, want, if you really want to see a reaping and sowing event take place, um, like I said, dare God to be what, he, what, he, what you should know, already know what he is. This man by the name of Belshazzar finds that out the very hard way. So this party is unashamedly blasphemous. Uh, they, they worship their gods using the vessels, the, the very vessels that God is using in the temple. So here's, here's the image for you. So, so Belshazzar is called for these, these holy implements that were belonged only to God and were only intended for the worship of God. And he pointed his finger right in his face. I dare God to do something. God can't even touch us here. And so it's the reason why he's drink, doing this. He has this big goblet that belongs to God filled with his own personal unique wine, takes a big gulp, with his big smile on his face, the thousands that are gathered begin to cheer and dance. The music begins to rev up. Everybody's just having this massive party. And all of a sudden, there is an interruption. Look at verse 5. 
maybe the fastest sober up in the history of man. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Of course, they can't read it, but they assume correctly that the message must not be good. So let's think, think with me real quick here in the situation. So we're throwing a party against God, pointing our finger in his face, daring him to do something, claiming that he can't, you can't even, you, no one can stop us. Totally ignoring what he did to his, his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, nonetheless. Daring God to do something, point his finger in his face. All of a sudden, this disembodied hand shows up and begins to write on the wall opposite from their king. You can't read it, but you probably are figuring it doesn't say cheers, right? <laughs> probably saying, I don't know. Probably not a good message. Well, they are very correct. They cannot read it, but it definitely is not a good message. So notice... They, at least they interpret the, not the direct meaning, but the implications for sure. Notice verse six, he's not excited in a good way. He, he is scared. Then the king's face, it says, grew pale. His thoughts alarmed him. His hip joints went slack. I'm going to talk to that about that in just a second. And his knees began knocking together. This is the king, the most powerful man in the world. All of a sudden, man, he is scared to death. You're familiar with what a euphemism is, right? Euphemism is we say something euphemistically in order to um, deliver from the harshness of words. Like, for instance, instead of saying I'm broke, I might say I am temporarily negative cash flow right now. (laughs) You're broke. You're broke as the Ten Commandments, but that's what you are. You're temporary negative cash flow. Instead of a used car anymore, they're saying (laughs) pre-enjoyed, pre-loved, right? It's a used car, but we... To deliver from the harshness of words. Well, that is, there's a potential euphemism here in the Aramaic that I want to point out to you. And what it is in particular, it says here that his hip joints went slack. Now, it could be that. It could literally be that he just simply went weak and couldn't stand up anymore. And of course, that is, that happens when people get afraid, that happens. This is also, though, used euphemistically in the Middle East, not just Israel, not just the the Aramaic-speaking cultures. It was a typical euphemism to imply the fact that he had soiled his britches. So I'm not saying guaranteed that that's that's what this means, but I'm saying it's potential. I just want to put it out there for you. It was not uncommon to use this euphemism in their language to say he was so scared that he messed his pants, okay? Anyway, that's in the Bible. There you go. Fairly common euphemism. So what's, happen, what's going to happen here is that he's going to call up now all of his conjurers, all of his advisors, all of his wise men. Somebody, by the way, has got to interpret this. You want to see what it looks like, by the way. That's what it looked like. And uh, it reads, mene, mene, tekel, uparson. Not because I can read that, but because, because I read a, a research paper that said that that's what it is. So you just trust me. <laughs> this is actually what's called Paleo-Hebrew. If you've had Hebrew, which I have studied Hebrew, it doesn't look anything like this. This is Paleo-Hebrew. It's the way they wrote many, many centuries before Christ. And so that's what you have here. So this is the handwriting. Can you read that? Neither can I. Neither could they. But this is what they saw, and it was written, like I said, by a disembodied hand on the wall. So they call in the conjurers and advisors. Everybody comes in. They take a look at this writing on the wall, and, of course, no one can interpret it. And so they finally call in, or the queen mother, I should say, comes in. His, the grandmother 
of, of King Belshazzar comes in, and who's, who was the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, who's now been dead for some 15 years, comes in and says, have you forgotten that there was a man in whom there is the Holy Spirits of the gods, speaking of Daniel, and this, this holy man can interpret, he interpreted dreams, he can certainly interpret these words, so let's call him up. Well, Daniel, by the way, is in his 80s by now. He's living in retirement or he's been forced into retirement, whichever probably is the case. Since these guys are turning against the God of the Bible, Daniel just says, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm not dealing with this. I'm not going to be a part of this. So Daniel's in retirement. He's called out of retirement. In that process, he comes and says, can you interpret this for you? He says, yeah, matter of fact, I can. But let me just say this to you. He says this to, to, uh, to Belshazzar. He says, you saw what happened to your grandfather. You saw how God humbled him. You saw how for seven years he was driven away from the presence of humanity and he lived like a wild man in the woods eating grass and hair growing like eagle's feathers and his fingernails growing like the claws of eagles. You saw that. You saw how God humbled him and how he turned back to God. He, you, you have his documents in front of you. You've read it. He wrote it. Like I said, chapter four of Daniel is written by Nebuchadnezzar. You have all this in front of you and yet this information has done you no good. Hasn't changed your heart. Hadn't made you different. And so he says, skip, skip down to, to chapter verse 22, here's where we pick it up. Yet you, you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Son referred to grandson, great-grandson, it didn't make any difference. They didn't have any other word for it like we do. They were, if you were a descendant of a person, you were considered his son in the sense of the way, they, the way their language worked, just, just as an aside. Verse 23. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and of gold and of bronze and of iron and of wood, which do not see or hear or understand, but the God in whose hand are, are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. Major mistake, he's saying. You are in big trouble, boy. He hasn't even interpreted the words for him. But by the way, and, and the words very simply interpreted are just this. They just simply say, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Now, even though I interpreted it for you, what is it? I can, we can interpret it, but what does that mean? So Daniel's not only going to interpret it for us, he's also going to determine the, the actual meaning of it. And so he reads the inscription. Now, verse 25, this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel ufarsen. And then he gives us a a uh, interpretation of each one of these words, and he's going to make an application. Verse 26, this is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put it to an end. Bad news. Tekel, you have been weighed in the scales and found lacking. Bad news. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. It says Belshazzar knew he told the truth, told him all these things, gave him this chain of gold, and so let's, let's go over the interpretation here very quickly. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Like I said, even if you could interpret this, you wouldn't know necessarily what it means. Numbered twice, it says numbered twice, basically says we've counted this thing twice and you are deficient. Weighed, he says, that's the word tekel there. So Belshazzar basically weighed the chances of being overthrown by God or anyone else. And he decided that he was going to come out on the winning side. And guess what? He had the bad set of scales. What can you say? A lot of people do. A lot of people are weighing the chances of what's the chances of uh, me facing God today? Probably not. Not a good chance. So I'm going to do whatever I want to. Well, one of these days you're going to be wrong about that. And it may be today. 
be better if you weighed correctly and understood because according to God's scales, according to Belshazzar, he came up a lightweight. You better hope you don't come up the same. And then finally he uses this word in there. He says, Perez. Anybody by the last name of Pettis here? Any, any Pettis? Pettis? How many Hispanics do we have here with no Pettis last name? We got no Pettis here? That's like Gonzalez in the phone book, isn't it? Did you know that Pettis is not a Spanish name? You say, well, what is a Spanish name doing in the Bible? I would say, what is, a, what is a Middle Eastern name doing among Hispanic people? That's really, that's the real question. Here's the, here's the answer. We forget that Spain was ruled by the Middle East. It was ruled by the Muslims. Muslim, Muslims aren't a recent problem. Spain was ruled by the Muslims for 500 years. They lived there inbred with the Hispanic people. Six, 700 years. This is a long time. And uh, a very, very long time they ruled there. And so many of the last names, especially if you have a last name that ends in EZ, like Hernandez, Jimenez, Perez, these are Middle Eastern names. So there you go in the Bible. There's, a, there's a trivial pursuit. You're going to win. <laughs> History tells us, but it be, the, la- the name just means divided. It's a Middle Eastern name that just means separated or divided. And so, but it's very old, comes from, like I said, the Bible. And by the way, you find it all the way back on the book of Genesis. So history tells us nonetheless that as Daniel is making this interpretation of this text, this unreadable text as far as the rest of the people are concerned, as he's making this interpretation and application that actually what's happening outside the city and inside the city is that the Medes of Persians have gotten in. See, the whole time that Belshazzar is throwing a party, the Medes and Persians are determining a way to divert the entire Euphrates River. Anybody a veteran of Iraq here? Been there? Anybody been there maybe? We're talking about like the Mississippi River. We're not talking about just a trickle. We're talking about a massive flow of water. They found a way to divert the waters, not completely, not 100%, but, but a large percentage, enough to drop the water in the moat where they could wade across to the walls and ultimately drop the water underneath the wall so that they could do the limbo underneath this wall, a couple of guys, crawl into the city, kill the guards of the gates, open the gates, and the entire Medes and Persian army marched in the city unopposed Take the city without firing a shot, go in there and kill all the officials. Look at verse 30, including this guy who's thumbing his nose at God. Verse 30, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain, the end of the Babylonian empire, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. It begins a 200-year progression of Pers- the Persian empire, the Median Persian empire. So, so no one likes to deal with the whole, hear the whole issue of how God is whole judgment side of God, right? We don't like to hear about that. We prefer to hear people that tell us all the good sides, what we call good sides of God. He is a God of forgiveness and mercy, to be sure. We preach about that here. We love that. I'd rely on that every day of my life. I'm trusting God that God is bigger than my mistakes and bigger than my shortcomings, bigger than my sins and issues. And God is a God of certainly of mercy and grace. And Nebuchadnezzar certainly in the chapter four was a guy who experienced God's mercy and grace, even though it required him to be humble. He lost everything, even his sanity for a time, but there is something worse. There's something worse than losing everything. There is, and God will deliver you. He's trying his best to deliver you from that. So one of the projects God's working on in your life right now in his humbling process, like I said, either you are humble or you will be. One or the other. The project he's working on in this life right now is to humble you now so that you will not have to be humbled later. That is an option for you. 
It is a prerogative. You have the prerogative to decide between the two, and you can be humbled now so that you are unnecessarily humbled later. Nebuchadnezzar chose to be humbled now, while his, his grandson chose the opposite. But, but there is, nonetheless, even though God is gracious and merciful to us, God is also a God of judgment as well. He just is. We all the time talk about the verse, and I love the verse that says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is the heart of God. That is who God prefers to be, but that is not all who he is. God, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come. Not, any, not willing that any should perish, but some will someday. They will. People will perish. But like I said, the option's yours. You, you have a decision to make. You can decide to not do right and not go well, as this young man does, and you can suffer the consequences as a result of it. People will perish. To be certain, don't, don't think for a second that God will be mocked. To be certain, these things are true. For God will bring every act into, into judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. How many things? Everything. He's not missing anything. Nothing goes He's not going to forget. He's not an old man up in heaven who's got senility and won't remember. No, everything is going to be brought into judgment. So make sure that what you're doing, you want to be called on the carpet for because, because you will. Now, I say that to say this. A lot of people say, well, as Christians, we're never going to be judged. And my answer to that would be, where did you hear that from? From whom? It wasn't, I hope, from me. I know it definitely was not from the Bible. Because it is very clear as Paul speaks to the Corinthian church, all Christians, speaking of himself included, we, he says, not you, me too, he says, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Where did we get this whole thing that we weren't going to be judged as Christians? I do know where we get it because we're told that Christ was judged for our sins on the cross, and that is absolutely certain. See, it's not, it's not a judgment for sin. Sin has been judged on the cross if you trusted Christ. And by the way, if you haven't, boy, do you really need to do that. So you've got an option because somebody's going to pay for your sins. Either you're going to or a spotless Savior will if you choose him. And it, like I said, the, the option is yours. But someone is going to pay for your sins. But even as a person whose sins have been paid for, that'd be me, because I've trusted Christ. It's got nothing to do with who I am, nothing to do with who I am as a job, my job or my degrees or nothing like that. It has everything to do with who Christ is. Even so, even Paul says, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? Not a judgment of sin, but a judgment of your eternal life. So, so he's judged your sin on the cross, right? You trust him as Savior. So what have you been doing with the eternal life that you've gotten since then? You will have to answer for that. You've been given such a privilege and such a blessing, the merciful and grace, grace of God, and God's going to just let you not, at, not have you own up to anything you've done since then? No. Like I said, you won't read that in the Bible. You will be talking to him about it for sure. Like I said, make sure you're doing stuff that you want to be caught at doing because you will. You definitely will. So the reason why, like I said, this message is so strong here in Daniel and other places in the Bible is because God loves us so deeply. If he didn't love us, he wouldn't tell us what was coming. But he warns us over and over again because he doesn't want us to get what we truly deserve. No greater warning of the judgment of God than the cross of Christ. How serious is God about sin? So serious that because the only way to deal with it was to hang his son on the cross. And so that's what he did. 
There was no other way to pay the penalty of sin or deal with the sins. Either, either he pays for our sins or we pay for our sins. I'm not sure if hell's a real place. So have you considered the cross of Christ? It was a very real thing. He was tortured to death for our sins, nothing that he did. He was tortured to death, bled out. The God of the universe who, who controls everything, who is in charge in every way, allowed his son to go through this. Why? Because there was no other way. How serious is God about sin? Look at the cross. That's how serious. He nailed his only son to a cross to die. He's very serious about sin. No greater demonstration of his, of his seriousness about sin. Also, no greater demonstration of his love for sinners. He loves us. How do we know? He nailed his own son to a cross to rescue us, to save us. Yes, God is a God of mercy and grace and also a God of judgment. And he's, there's not halves here. He's 100% all those things at all times. He knows what's coming for us. That's why he does, has done what he's done and is doing what he's doing, working in our lives right now. No greater demonstration of the love of God for sinners than the cross. It once demonstrated the love of God and the wrath of God simultaneously. You see, what we need to understand is it's not just a Babylonian king who has stuff written against him. It's you too. Colossians, consider. We'll be done. Chapter 2, verse 14. He is made alive, that would be us, together with him, having forgiven you your trespasses. That's what God gives us through his son Jesus. We trust Jesus, God forgives us. Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us. You just thought it was Belshazzar. Handwriting's on all of your walls. All of us. Which was contrary to us, it says. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. There was no other way for that to happen. No other way. Belshazzar wouldn't have it. And so the handwriting completely went against him. That's an option. You can choose that option. It's not an option God wants. Not willing that any should perish, but some people will. Indeed, they will. God's willing to nail those, that handwriting, those rules, those laws of his that you've broken. Well, what right does he have to make arbitrary rules? Well, they're not arbitrary, number one. But, but otherwise, he is God. That gives him right to do whatever he wants. Say you don't like it. Too bad. Deal with it, because God is willing to deal with you in a gracious and merciful way. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Submit to his only way, which is only through his son Jesus. Only by placing your faith in God's son. That means he died to pay for your sins. You have to personally say, that is for me. I, I trust him. Has there been a point in your life in which you've come? I'm not asking if you believe that Jesus is the Savior. I'm asking, is he your Savior? Have you personally trusted him see if all you know that he is the savior the devil also knows the same thing so how are you better than him so there has to be a place where you accept him as your personal savior not willing that you should perish god isn't how unwilling is he he hung his only son on a cross to, to deliver you from that that's extreme unwillingness but nonetheless it is it is your prerogative you must decide but those who trust him it says to them, he wipes out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, contrary to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to a cross. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together, please. 
God, I thank you that you have loved us so greatly, that you're so passionate to have us as yours, that you hung your one and only son, allowed him to be tortured to death, to bleed out, so that he could take upon himself the punishment in that process, the punishment for our sin, so that we wouldn't get what was actually coming. We're the ones that deserve that punishment, but he took it. You are a God, even though you are indeed a judge. And there does come a limit to your patience and your mercy. But you are a God who today is being merciful to us. Here we are today as sinners, and yet we're still alive. We're still not getting what we do deserve. You're being so good to us, God. I pray that we wouldn't reject your offer of forgiveness and grace. I pray that we wouldn't take this eternal life, having trusted Christ, we wouldn't just take it for granted and say, you know, I can live whatever I want to because Jesus has paid for my sins. Lord, I pray that we realize that whatever we do, we're going to be answering for it. Thank you, God, for making the message clear to us so that we are not living, so that we can plan accordingly. We're not living in the dark. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.